Welcome back to the Bible Brush Up Podcast. This episode of the 12-week Torah series is picking up where we left off, discussing the life of Abraham and the covenant that God established with him back in Genesis 12. And that covenant gets blown out even more in Genesis chapter 15. And uh, so we want to look at some of the aspects of this covenant and really nail that down because it creates an interpretive grid for going through the rest of the Old Testament. I mean, this really becomes the bedrock and the foundation for all that unfolds moving forward in the Old Testament. And so if you don't grasp this covenant and understand uh, the conditions and the uh, elements associated with this particular covenant, then all else is lost. Uh, or at least the depth of it is lost as you move forward. And so let's talk about that a little bit. When God comes to Abraham, uh, in light of what was lost in Genesis, we want to back up a little bit. In Genesis, Adam and Eve lost their connection with God. That's God's presence. They lost the land of Eden. That was the place. They lost perfect, harmonious relationships with other people uh, seen in the... Uh, division between Adam and Eve, the rivalry between Cain and Abel, and humans in general, as you move forward, we see they're no longer in perfect harmony. So they lost place, they lost people, they lost the presence of God, and um, really they lost their purpose. They were supposed to be kings and priests of God and to expand the Garden of Eden to reach the ends of the earth and they were to fill that earth and that garden with God's image bearers, and that was their purpose. And so people, place, presence, and purpose, the four Ps, we'll talk about them a lot as we move through the Torah and any other series that we may do going through the Old Testament. Um, that quadruple P formula is incredibly important. When we get to the Tower of Babel, we saw in our last episode that they were trying to reproduce that. They were trying to manufacture a Garden of Eden situation. They wanted to make themselves a great name. That was kind of their purpose. They wanted to uh, create a place that they could stick together instead of spreading out over the earth, and that was the place they were trying to establish. They tried to encounter God's presence through the building of this ziggurat temple that reached into the heavens. And all of this, this recreation, this manipulation of Eden was disrupted by God. He comes down and he spreads them out. He scatters them and he gives them different languages at that point so that they can no longer try to uh, collaborate and accomplish these things by their own strength and their own means. But instead, God goes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, a great name. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And he tells him he's going to take him to a land, a place. And of course, we know that that, that place will be the habitation of God eventually. And so the four Ps are now in the works of being restored. Eden is in the works of being restored through the Abrahamic covenant. But it's a slow process. And God even tells Abraham in chapter 15 that he's going to uh, have to die. And there's going to be a waiting period of about 400 years while the sin of the Amorites is being filled up and or being completed. 
Um, so if we could talk about that phrase at some point, uh, it's important to understand that God has these grand purposes and there is a tipping point in sin. There's a, a point that's the fullness of time for Christ to come. And so God is working things in his own time uh, table. And these are things that, like I said, that could be discussed and fleshed out more, but we'll, we'll move on uh, for time's sake. So now Abraham is, he's given all these promises and our emphasis going forward should be especially on the elements of people and place. Abraham is going to have descendants and he's going to get land. Those are the promises of God for him. And so the Isaac narrative, uh, as we're looking at Isaac being born of Abraham, this was important because if Abraham doesn't have a child, then the promise is failed. God does not live up to his word. And this is why uh, Sarah, she's panicking and she says, you know, you should uh, go into my servant and have a child with her so that the promise can be fulfilled. But that's kind of like what they did in Babel, trying to accomplish it by your own power and your own means. And that ends up being a complete train wreck. And we have battles in the Middle East today because of that mistake. And so that was not how God was communicating that the descendant would come about. He had already communicated that it would come about through Sarah. And eventually that does take place. And so Isaac is born and that starts the promise of God. And it starts uh, the unfolding of that promise that they're going to have descendants. It starts with one, it starts with Isaac. And then Isaac has to uh, obtain a wife. And so God miraculously and providentially provides a wife from um, the area of Haran. And Rebecca comes onto the scene. Rebecca is brought into the storyline. And I find it interesting that as she's leaving her, her uh, home, that her uh, brothers and the family that's around her, they say this in chapter 24, verse 60. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. It's there even communicating this idea of them, her being a part of this grand explosion of people, this, this fulfillment of descendants that has been promised to Abraham. And so they're, they're articulating that in that blessing upon Rebecca. And so she goes back to the land, and she marries Isaac, and... Uh, so they have children, and on the family tree begins to grow in fulfillment of this promise to Abraham that there will be descendants. Um, and so one of the reasons I bring all this up, and I don't want to bore you with the things you've heard a billion times, but I think too often we hear stories in Sunday school growing up and maybe um, highlights within um, Bible lessons that show up in a class, and we focus on the story itself. So, for instance, Joseph, we, I remember growing up and we colored in the coat of many colors and we talked about Joseph being sold into slavery and we learned the details of the story, but we never stop in these, especially in these young children's classes and usually not even in adult classes to ask the question, why is this story here? Why did God orchestrate all of these events? The story of Moses, the same thing. Moses 
We know of that story. We know he parts the Red Sea. We know about the ten plagues. We know that he leads the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. But why is that story there? Why did that unfold the way that it did? That's where I think we miss our Bible interpretation, our Bible study most of the time, is at that level. And these two events, and really all the events going forward, but these two events especially, because they come next in Genesis and in Exodus, but these events are really answering the question of how is God going to uphold his promise regarding descendants and land. Because when Joseph is sold into Egyptian slavery, that is a threat both to the descendants and to the land. There's a great famine that's in the land. It seems like everybody's going to die. And the question is, how is God going to preserve his people? How is he going to preserve his promise to Abraham with this great threat upon the promise? We have this, this epic situation here that people are going to die, and if they all die out, then God's a liar. But we know that God's not a liar, that God always upholds his promises. And so by sending Joseph to Egypt, he actually preserves the people. And though the brothers were evil in what they did, at the end of the narrative with Joseph, Joseph makes this statement, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God even used their evil intentions to preserve the people of God so that his promises did not fail. And so Joseph really is a story not as much about a code of colors. It's not as much a story about Joseph doing the right thing and being the right guy and um, interpreting dreams, even though all those details are important and they have other lessons that we can learn from them. But the main reason I believe that the, the Joseph story is in Genesis is to show that God upholds his promises. He promised Abraham they would have descendants and a threat comes upon that promise and God shows us how he preserves his people. Even in the most unlikely ways, God will preserve his promises. He will uphold his promises. And so we have descendants preserved through the Joseph narrative. But now we've got a new problem because Joseph and all of his descendants, or not his descendants, but his family tree, all of his brothers and his father, they all go down to Egypt. So all of Israel, all of the descendants of Abraham are now in Egypt. But that's not the land that God promised. So while we had a threat on the people of God in Genesis, now moving into Exodus, we have a threat on the land situation, the land promise. How is God going to uphold his promise about land when they are now stuck in Egypt as slaves? And that's why the story of Moses is there. It's not just to show us that God's powerful through plagues. It's not just to show us that Moses was a, a good leader and could part waters and that they could get manna from heaven and that God provides for his people. Those are certainly important takeaways. But the real reason, the main reason that that story shows up in our scripture is to show that God's promise is not going to fail. He promised Abraham that they would have a promised land, that they would enter the land of Canaan, that they would set up shop there in what's now Israel. And God is not going to fail on his promise. He's going to make sure that comes about. So even though there's a threat to that promise, even though there seems like uh, an, an uh, unavoidable set of hurdles 
that they will never be able to get past, God is going to show that he certainly can overcome any obstacle, and he does. And it takes miracles and extreme, uh, an extremely strong hand of divine providence to bring them through these trials, to, to escape the grasp of the strongest man in the world at that time. But it shows us that God is stronger. And so we have Moses show up, and he leads them out, and he takes them on their way to the promised land, and eventually we get Joshua who leads them into the promised land. So these stories are there with so many takeaways, but the main thing to focus on is that God will uphold his promise to Abraham. It's all surrounding the idea of the Abrahamic covenant. And like I said, if you missed that covenant and you missed how that was connected to uh, Babel and how it was connected to Eden, then you're really missing the main storyline, the main takeaway. It's kind of like when if you tell a kid a, an Aesop fable where there's a takeaway, a proverb or something to be learned, and at the end of it, they're fixating on some detail that really wasn't important to the story. I've had that happen time and time again when I've taught kids lessons. Um, but we don't want to be the kid here that misses the main takeaway. This is the main takeaway. God has promised a restoration recipe for getting back to Eden. And it's going to start and begin and unfold through the people of Abraham, which will eventually be a blessing to every nation. And God is going to be the strength that brings this about. And nothing can stand in its way. No one can stop this. This train is rolling through and no one can stop it. God will uphold his promises. And that eventually becomes most greatly fulfilled in the New Testament when we get to Jesus and when we get to his uh, calling of the disciples and his uh, institution of the church. And the promises made to them are similar to the promises made to Abraham. They are the fulfillment of those promises in the New Testament context. And today we're living that out in the church setting. And, and so don't miss these connections as you read through the Old Testament. They're there for a reason. And to miss them really pulls the carpet out from underneath what you know about the New Testament. It's a foundation that is supposed to be built upon, not to be ignored. And so get these ideas uh, situated in your mind as you read through. Never read through the Old Testament again without asking the question, how does this fulfill the Abrahamic covenant? I want to mention one other thing before we close for the day, and I would like to take a moment to talk about the second son, the second son. Maybe you've picked up on this before, maybe not, but if you go back to Adam and Eve, they have Cain and they have Abel. And God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. And so the second son sort of received a blessing, uh, not the first son. After that, we got to the story of Isaac, and Isaac is not the first son of Abraham. It's the first son of Sarah, but not the first son of Abraham. Abraham has Ishmael uh, with Hagar, the servant girl. And so this shows that, once again, the second son receives the blessing because it's through Isaac that all nations are going to be blessed. It's through Isaac that the promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. And then Isaac has two sons with Rebekah, and he has Jacob and he has Esau. And Esau is the oldest, 
but we find out that Jacob is going to receive the blessing and the birthright. All the things that should have went to the firstborn son culturally, but God is orchestrating this in such a way that the secondborns are receiving these blessings, and it's communicating a truth. Uh, this happens again with Ephraim and Manasseh, and this is just a repeating theme throughout the beginning of the Old Testament that I think is pointing towards the significance of Jesus Christ, because Adam is mentioned in the genealogy of Luke to be the first son of God. He's the son of God. But Jesus comes on the scene later, and um, Paul calls him the last Adam. And so we have the first Adam, and we have the last Adam, or the second Adam, as some theologians have referred to him. And he's the second son. Now, we know that he's the only begotten son, and so don't mix these two uh, theological truths. He is the one and only God-man. Adam was never a God-man. Adam was not divine. But there is a thematic sense in which Adam was the son and Jesus is the second son, and it is the second son that's going to bring salvation, not the first son. Salvation wasn't going to come through Ishmael. It was going to come through the line of Isaac. Salvation wasn't going to come through Esau. It was going to come through the line of Jacob. God is using the one that is usually inferior in the historical and cultural context to bring about great things uh, that he has promised to Abraham. And so keep that in mind as you go through the scripture. And remember that the Old Testament continues to point to Jesus Christ, our salvation. We'll see you next time on the Bible Brush Up Podcast.